I'm Jonathan Amberman. Coming up on today's show... About four years ago, I met with some MIT scientists who wanted to pitch me on fusion. And, and I said, as we all do, oh, come on, I, I've been hearing this story a long time. And they said, no, there are so many other breakthroughs in physics and in science, superconductivity, among other things, that we can do this now. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. And I'm back. It's Jonathan Aberman here, back with What's Working in Washington. I asked my buddy Mark Walsh if I could take the show back over. I've been looking at the region, and I've been looking at our economy and society, and I said to Mark, you know, I'd like to contribute. I'd like to contribute to the conversation. I'd like to be able to bring my viewpoint as an investor, entrepreneur, to try to talk about what's going on in this region with people that matter. Because that's the mission of what's working in Washington. Now, this coming year in particular, we have an election of national importance, but we also are at a crossroads with respect to our local economy and our local regional society. There's never been a time where there's been more at play and frankly, more hard decisions to be made. And over the next year, that's what we're gonna use what's working in Washington for. We're gonna bring people into studio who are gonna have viewpoints about what is going on in the world around us, their particular views on what needs to change, what has to change, what hasn't changed. And frankly, I'm gonna push back on them just a little bit from time to time to make sure that we end up providing you with insight into why what's working in Washington isn't something that people say with a, a snarky expression, but something that people say and mean it, that this is a place and a region where things get done and problems get solved. With that in mind, my first guest in my inaugural issue in this new run on What's Working in Washington is Congressman Don Byer. Don is an expert on entrepreneurship because he's been a small business owner for many years, but he's remade himself as a technology expert, and he's very involved in things like artificial intelligence and fusion. And we're going to talk with him about that today. I think you're going to see and enjoy meeting somebody who really, really likes his job. So let's listen. Don Beyer, Congressman Don Beyer, thanks for joining us today. Jonathan, thanks so much for the invitation. I, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. I am too. Please do me a favor, if you don't mind, talk about some of the committees and some of the things you're tangibly involved in in Congress right now so we can set the stage for how you're working in Congress. Jonathan, I'm thrilled to be on the Ways and Means Committee. We like to brag it's the only committee mentioned in the Constitution <laughs> and the oldest committee. Uh, I'm relatively junior on it, but that's changing fast with all the retirements that are happening this year. And, and it's a it's, you know, as a businessman, it's really fascinating and important to be part of trade policy, tax policy, you know, where the revenues are going to come from to pay for our government. I was on the science committee for the last eight years and chaired the space committee, uh, which I just loved. But when we lost the majority, I got thrown off because the, the ratios shift and hope to do that again. I chaired the Joint Economic Committee in the last Congress, which was um, very fulfilling, a whole young crew of you know, almost PhD economists sorting through the biggest data, trying to provide uh, like the Council of Economic Advisors for the Congress rather than the president and, uh, and lots of other little things. But it's the, you know, when you, when you run a small business, as you well know, you're always working 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And so I, that was, I'm used to that in Congress. <laughs> and you can fill the days from early morning to late at night with all the things that need to be done. One of the things that struck me over the years as I've interacted with you is I think you like this job. I love this job. 
Yeah, Jonathan, I've had many different roles, um, including you know management from a, from a relatively young age. But this is by far the most fulfilling. The nice part about Congress is even in the minority, even one of 535 elected officials, you have a chance to be a change agent. You can see something wrong in the community, you read about it in the paper, see it on TV, and say, I, I can go try to do something about that today, whether it's a, a letter to the president or a phone call to a cabinet secretary or, or just working with a committee chair to try to get legislation. It's, it's, it's very um, a chance to actually make a difference. So we were going to talk about AI and artificial intelligence, but I must tell you, I'm so struck by what you just said. I I want to follow it up, if you don't mind. Uh, I am struck, as I engage in other media content elsewhere, how rarely what you just described is actually – I don't hear that from a lot of Congress people when they're on the – I assume there are a lot of people that you work with on a daily basis that share these values. You can't be the only one. If you're only one, then I'm glad I've met you, but I can't imagine the only one. <laughs> no, I don't think I'd enjoy it if I was the only one. In fact, I think it's true for almost all of them. You know, when I first ran, you know, 10 years ago, I was, I'd never been in Congress, and I was under the impression that it was a, a hostile place, mm. that Democrats didn't talk to Republicans and people were mad all the time. It turns out it's a very friendly place. Um, I, I'm a nerd, so I have my, my Excel spreadsheet of my Republican friends, which is always floating around 90. Uh, when I get to be close to them, they retire, but whatever. <laughs> um, and, and I think it's really important, if you want to do good legislation, to try to work across party lines. You know, my, my pal Mark Warner says neither party has a, a, a monopoly on wisdom. Mm. And, you know, humility goes a long way in actually trying to make things happen. So. I, I spent a lot of time wandering around the Republican floor on the House just trying to build relationships so that we can get things done together. And by the way, e- even there's a handful on both sides that are there for the fame and the glory and the money and to be on TV, but that's a handful. Uh, most of them are, are there because they really do believe that it's through political action that we try to make America a better place. I love it. And we have some more time to cover, but I, I could stop right now and go home and f- feel a lot happier. <laughs> but, but let's let's turn our attention to uh, the topic of the day. I'm very concerned about artificial intelligence and uh, in various ways, how it could affect the economy, the workforce, national security, and so forth. Uh, you're involved now in AI, and also, I know you're also very interested in energy and alternative energy, but let's start with artificial intelligence. What are you up to right now? Well, it's interesting, Jonathan. I've been fascinated in this since I read an Eric Severide graduation speech in 1977 where he talked about we have so much data and information we can't sort out what's important and what's not. We can't see the connections um, that the cause and effect. And that was a long time ago. So I've always been interested in uh, deep learning and data mining and, and the like. And we, we've reconstituted that as artificial intelligence in the last decade or so. I went back two years ago to George Mason University, my hometown university, uh, to try to get a master's in machine learning uh, in computer science, which is the closest they come to AI per se. Uh, it's uh, one of my proudest parts of last year is I learned how to code. <laughs> and uh, and I start the next class pretty soon. Um, but what that's done, though, even though I am, I'm a baby coder, I mean, there's, an, there's a, a plethora of college students who are 
better at this, smarter at this than I am. Um, nevertheless, because of that, I ended up being in the center of the AI policy discussion on Capitol Hill and have really tried to seize that mantle uh, of leadership. And it's been very fascinating. Uh, we've had lots of the top guys come, you know, the Sam Altmans from OpenAI and, and Jack Clark from Anthropic and others. But we're trying to find out how we put guardrails on AI. Mm. Uh, what are we guarding against? How do we structure them so that they work? What's happening in other countries? How to avoid what we didn't do with social media, which is create any guardrails whatsoever. So let's unpack that a little bit. What kind of guardrails do you think it's appropriate or are you and your colleagues on the Hill working towards? Because that, that as you say, social media has no guardrails and we're now basically being drowned in, frankly, propaganda in a lot of places. So what do the guardrails look like in an AI world? We're still trying to figure that out. Interestingly, Jonathan, there's more than 100 – AI bills have already been introduced. Mm. And some, uh, my, the low-hanging fruit, bipartisan, uh, Ted Lieu and I and uh, Ken Buck from Colorado, Republican, says you can't use AI to, to make nuclear launch decisions. You well, know, that we, is clearly, <laughs> Skynet's not going to happen. Yeah, That's a relief. Yeah, gonna, yeah. However, we're, we're also trying to get to things that we hope are less, uh, you know, catastrophic. Um, one of the big things, for example, with OpenAI is we know that when they scrub six trillion words off the internet, a lot of those words were wrong. Mm. They were either racist, sexist, anti-Semitic, et cetera, or they were just imaginary. And so you get these things called hallucinations that everybody knows about. When you, you go to OpenAI, so it's telling me about Jonathan Aberman, and it tells me you're an opera singer. You know, I'm excellent. Uh, okay, good. Oh, good, sorry. Good. <laughs> so we have created the Create AI Act, mm. again, bipartisan, um, to – create um, curated data sets, big, big curated data sets, rather than just scrubbing the internet, so that AI scientists, students, people in the industry can use this data set to build their models without having to worry that there's a lot of bad information in it. It's very interesting because I think one of the big problems with AI is it's black box. And uh, it's not only the garbage data that you can work with, it's also the bias that you have or one has. I mean, it's a very dangerous thing. It's fascinating to me that people uh, are uncomfortable, say, with autonomous cars. You know, the idea, oh, my gosh, a car might drive me into a wall, but yet they seem to be very happy in business. I know in particular as an investor, people are very happy to work with the output of an AI model and say, oh, that must be true. You know, is it one of our challenges here that uh, we, we need to sort of demystify or make AI more transparent? Yeah, and that's the other big bill that I hope we can get past this year. And we just introduced it a week or two ago. And that's on um, what the foundational models um, are responsible for to the government, the, specifically the Federal Trade Commission, to the National Institute of Standards and Technology, and really to the American people. And this is uh, the foundational models. We have a, a working definition on how many times it's accessed by, by the public, you know, per day, per hour, per year. Um, so you're only talking a handful of the really big models, like OpenAI, you know, mm -hmm. BARD and those, those folks, Bing. And basically what we're saying is we need clarity on what their model is. Uh, we need to make sure that the copyright provisions are preserved. You know, we're driving authors, musicians, uh, movie makers crazy with the, the copyright problems. Uh, and just make sure that uh, there is some sense of explainability about why they're giving you the answer that they're giving you. Now – AI quickly, we expect, will be in everybody's back pocket in a couple of years. And so there's no attempt to try to regulate that. 
But if we look at the really big models that perhaps millions of people are depending on on a day-to-day basis, there needs to be a lot more transparency and accountability for them. When we look at other medias as they've um, medium as they've come into the the public square, you know, radio, television, newsprint, and so forth, um, there was always an aspect of trusted information source, uh, and often the government had a role licensing the airwaves, uh, enforcing different rules. Effectively, do you think we'll end up in a situation where we? Well, let me just stop. We will never be able to regulate how people develop AI models. I think that's an impossibility. The the we just won't be able to do that. But are you getting that that there needs to be some sort of gold standard? You know, that if, if you comply with these standards as an AI model, a user can feel comfortable. It's it's free of bias. It's free of whatever it is. Is that what we're trying to get to? Not regulate everything, but provide an objective information it, it, source? Exactly. The, the EU, European Union, has recently passed their AI Act. And it's poorly received here in the United States because it is so – prescriptive and restricted, uh, you know, everybody's, everything's got to be licensed and the like. Um, so we're trying to avoid that. Um, but I, I do want to talk about the, the gold standard right now is the National Institute of Standards and Technology, you know, locally, Gaithersburg, NIST. Their, their AI framework is considered to be, you know, the, the diamond standard for AI responsibility. In the president's AI executive order from a month or two ago, One of the things he said is all federal government contracting, what Department of Defense does, Commerce, um, they have to insist that the AI, the NIST AI framework is used. I'm here with Congressman Don Beyer from Commonwealth of Virginia's 8th District. This is What's Work in Washington. We'll be right back. Love hearing from our listeners. You put us in touch with some of the best voices in the Washington, D.C. region. We've been hearing from you and speaking to the people you want to hear from. That's what What's Working in Washington is about. We talk to the power players about innovation in the federal government and how business in the region is keeping us competitive. But more and more, we talk about the hard questions and look for the real answers that will drive the region and our nation forward. If you know someone we should be talking to on our show, do let us know. We look to shine a spotlight on people who are really getting things done in the region. So please keep those ideas coming. And thanks to all of you who stay in touch with us. Welcome back. We're here with Congressman Don Beyer from the Commonwealth of Virginia's 8th District. We were talking before the break about artificial intelligence and what he and others are up to with respect to trying to find a way to make, well, let's just say a gold standard for how to look at AI. 
Uh, so, Congressman Byer, with that in mind, let's turn our attention to a topic that I know many people are concerned about once you put aside the sky night, which it sounds like that legislation has been passed to keep us from being blown up. So, blowing up jobs. A lot of people are very concerned about job displacement and job substitution. Is there a role in legislation for that? Is there a government role or is that a free market thing? It is both, Jonathan. It, it, you know, this is not the first time that we've seen a major technology change jobs. That's true. Um, I'm, you know, I've, I've been in the car business for 46 years. We just had our 50th anniversary. And the role of an automobile mechanic is going to change dramatically in the years to come. Instead of changing spark plugs and oil and the like, um, they're going to need computers because it's all going to be EV. It'd be a very different skill set. And I think, sadly, there will be a bunch of people that are displaced mm. and new people have to come in. We never get to go to record stores anymore, right? There's so many things have changed over the years. My daughter was driving by an old Blockbuster store the other day, and we were just laughing about it. Uh, and so the role of government, I think, will be to try to create as many upskilling, retraining programs as we can. I'm not worried about the next generation. I mentioned my classes at George Mason University. My Python 101 class last semester had 840 students in it. I suspect it was the largest single class there. The kids understand what's happening, and they're getting ready for it. It's more people your age that I'm worried about uh, who, you know, if you're a, a copy editor, for example, uh, who needs a copy editor anymore? Uh, but we're just going to – part of capitalism is creative destruction. Hmm. And part of government is trying to take care of people who are who have just been creatively destroyed and still have a life and still need an income. I think that is going to be uh, fundamentally – the big conversation we're going to have at some point around, say, guaranteed income or what the role is in government, is there a social uh, net? Because I agree with you, and thank God I have this radio show to fall back on but because <laughs> I don't know how to code. Um, but people that have been in the workforce for 10, 15, 20 years, things are about to change dramatically, and they are going to have a very difficult time adapting. Or 30 or 40 years who continue to need to work. I, I'm, I'm sincerely concerned about them. Yeah. And yet at the same time, for most of the last two years, we've had a job opening to unemployment ratio of two to one. Yeah. You know, the JOLTS report, you know, we're typically still at, at 8 million unfilled jobs in the country. Mm. So we have to work just much harder to make sure that we're taking the people without work and, and up-training them. By the way, the next generation, you know, my 23-year-old children and nieces and nephews, they all think that things like uh, universal basic income, and 32-hour work weeks are the very certain future uh, based on what AI is going to do to our economy, mm. that we're not going to need to work 45 hours a week or whatever the average American work is, week is now yeah, uh, because it's going to create so much more goods and services so much faster. So let's turn our attention from uh, that vision of plenty to another thing that you're very involved in, which is nuclear fusion. And nuclear fusion... For those of you that uh, don't know, is the opportunity to harness the power of the sun, not in an explosive way, that's fission, but in a way that creates basically permanent energy. And it's very exciting. And fusion energy is one of those things that's been right around the corner for as long as I've been alive. <laughs> but Don, I, Congressman Beyer, I understand that we're a lot closer now than we've ever been. Tell me about that. Yeah, you know, I, about four years ago, I met with some MIT scientists who wanted to pitch me on fusion. And, and I said, as we all do, oh, come on, I, I've been hearing this story a long time. And they said, no, there are so many other breakthroughs in, in physics and in science 
you know, super conductivity, among other things, that we can do this now. Uh, so right now there are pushing 40 companies in America that are actively working on it. Uh, Commonwealth Fusion in Massachusetts will turn on its first reactor in the first quarter of 2026, which is two, you know, two years from now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, there are, I, I won't give you all the different examples, but it's very exciting. And the reason it's so exciting is because, first of all, it's a limitless supply of, of energy. The raw material is seawater. And you know, we're not going to run out in, in the history of mankind. And there's no radioactive waste. The only byproduct is, byproduct is helium, which is a, 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 you know, a, a noble gas that you can't smell it or see it or anything else. And this is the solution for, I think, mankind's two biggest problems. Number one, climate change. And not only the ability to replace almost all fossil fuels, but to use fusion energy to take much of the carbon we've dumped into the atmosphere the last 400 years out. And second is poverty. We still have 2 billion people who go to bed hungry every night. We've come a long, long, long way, but we need to continue to lift up uh, everybody that we can. And for most poor people, the biggest source of our use of their resources is energy. So you make energy basically cheap and ubiquitous. It's a different world. Absolutely. Now, when we were talking about AI, it sounds to me like we were imagining or you were imagining uh, a government role of providing guardrails, but that the private sector was largely developing AI. Is there a different role for government in fusion? No. Again, we're just a catalyst. A lot of the initial stuff has happened through a major project in in Marseille, France called ETER that many different governments have worked on. Uh, So we have been doing the science, but now the the science is largely sorted out as the engineering. And so that's where the private sector is going. We'll have $778 $778 million, which in the federal budget of $1.55 trillion is a, is a tiny drop in the bucket. That'll be the federal commitment to fusion in this coming year. So we're, we're, we're not trying to take it over. We don't want to pick winners. But in fact, it's interesting. It's the opposite of Solyndra. We're putting money on the table for solving specific engineering problems. You solve the problem, you get the money. That's really interesting. So it, it's not taking a bet that somebody has a business model. It's finding financial support to help somebody solve an engineering challenge. Exactly right. And and to basically put it out there is prize money. Um, because the National Academies have said, here are the 35 engineering problems have to be overcome. And that is a model, based upon my experience working myself with DOD and other agencies, this prize model has been very effective in encouraging entrepreneurial behavior. I mean, frankly, robotic cars exist because the DARPA challenges around robotic cars. Yeah, It's a proven model. So let's turn our attention to the region. Well, first of all, I've got to say, it's a lot of fun for me talking with somebody who's a real futurist. You realize that you're actually helping to create the future. Well, you know, my dad was a stock car racer, and I have pictures of him racing at Daytona on the beach. He used to tell me the only difference between a great driver and average driver was that great drivers looked farther down the road. God, I love that. That is awesome. What's the opportunity for this region around AI or, or fusion as entrepreneurship as you see it? I think it's huge. I, I love living here. When people my age start to retire to like Florida, it's like, why would you leave Washington, D.C. and the DMV? And the universities that we have, George Mason, Georgetown, GW, et cetera, et cetera, just wonderful places. And you know, Amazon HQ2 moved to Northern Virginia because there was no other region in the country that was producing as many young people with high skill sets as the, the DMV area. So I'm incredibly optimistic about it. I'm optimistic, too, although I will tell you that from my perspective, one of the things that I'm most concerned about is 
there isn't enough risk capital uh, available to really help entrepreneurs start businesses in these areas. And and do you think that there is a, a role for our local politicians to play in helping to solve that problem? Well, I'm a politician, so <laughs> I always think there is, yes. Good. Although I don't have a quick answer of what we would yeah. do. Obviously, we look and see all that risk capital tends to go to New York, Boston, and, and California, mm. maybe Austin, Texas, but it really needs, some of it needs to come everywhere else. Steve Case, famously of, of AOL, has been trying to bring that risk capital to small towns all across the country the last couple of years with a lot of success. Well, I'll tell you that one of the things that I've got passion about over the coming months is to figure out if we can catalyze more of an effort around that. Because speaking for myself, I think that AI, fusion, um, quantum, and other things, the, the future's happened. We are the Jetsons. We even are going to have flying cars. There's a big company in Charlottesville building them right now. Exactly. So will you? Will your family sell flying cars? <laughs> I don't know. Perhaps. You know, that's that's back to adapting your business. And I think adaptability is is very much the theme. So as we complete our time together, we started with a very optimistic note, as you talked about your time and working in Congress. As we look to the election, give us a sense of what you would be optimistic about. Are we going to get past this period of theater to, you know, the opportunity for us to actually solve real problems together? Uh, I certainly hope so. We're, we're as divided as we've ever been. I think it's the, the primary challenge in, in America today is overcoming these two different cultures. My optimism comes from the fact that I know a lot of folks on the other side of the cultural wall for me that are good people, you know, that, that love their families and wouldn't, you know, don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat, would never hurt me. Uh, we just have to keep finding ways to work together as best we can. Well, I, I commend you for doing it, Congressman, and I'm, I'm glad you're doing it. And we'll look forward to having you on the show again and look for some ideas from me and my friends about how we can create more capital here. Great. Thank you, Jonathan, very much. What's working in Washington? That's a question we often hear. The reality is, Washington works every day at looking at the issues that have to be addressed, solving problems when we can, but more than anything, the crossroads for where change will occur and needs to occur. This show, What's Working in Washington, brings voices into the studio so you can hear from them what they want to do and how they want to contribute to this great enterprise we call the United States of America. What's Working in Washington is a team effort. Our executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Our assistant producer is Anna DeGraff. The theme music you've been listening to is performed by the Sunbathers. And thanks to all of you for joining us on What's Working in Washington. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.